friends. Welcome to episode seven of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. In today's episode, we're going to learn from Dr. N.T. Wright as he talks with us about his brand new book called Broken Signposts, How Christianity Makes Sense to the World, which provides us with insights into seven ways to read the Gospel of John through the lenses of love, justice, truth, beauty, freedom, power, and spirituality. Dr. Wright shares with us how each of these themes have become fractured in society and in ourselves and ways for us to find healing and redemption amid our brokenness. We also learn more about the way spirituality has become broken, along with the rise in Gnosticism and narcissism in our culture. He also shares ways to develop a devotional practice of daily scripture reading, prayer time, and studying our Bibles. And at the end of the episode, Dr. Wright describes how his reading of the Bible includes critical analysis and seeking devotional insights at the same time, and how those two ways of reading the Bible flow together. Here's our conversation. I want to ask you how you were doing amid COVID. Well, um, we're doing all right, I guess. We're a lot luckier than some people in that we, uh, we have an ordinary house on an ordinary street. We can walk out on the street. We can walk to local stores, cafes, etc. There are restrictions. You have to wear masks and so on. But um, it's not nearly as bad as it was during lockdown during April and May when we weren't supposed to leave the house uh, except for sort of frantic, quick grocery stops and then straight back. We still do get most of our groceries delivered. And, and those guys have been working over time um, to do that. But uh, we have been able to visit family and family have been able to visit us, not uh, too many at one time, just you know, one of our children with their family and then another one, but not at the same time because we're not supposed to mix three families together. And uh, uh, travel is, is restricted. We had some travel plans um, to go up north, which we've had to modify because um, airlines were cancelling flights because not enough people were traveling. Right. I fully understand that. So, but but these are kind of first world problems. You know, we we've had friends and uh, indeed some family members who've suffered very badly the medical effects, um, and one who's older now who is is still very sick for whom we're praying. Um, and uh, so we're, we're, I think everybody in the country is aware of somebody they know who's had it really badly or still has it really badly. Um, we haven't been affected by it in the family, though. Whenever we get a cold, we sort of think, hang on, is this the beginning of it? And so far, um, please God, it hasn't been. But uh, so it hasn't been as bad for us as for some. I mean, we, we, my heart goes out to people who live in, say, a tower block when you're on the sort of 35th floor and you don't have a garden to walk out into. And any journey anywhere involves passing lots and lots of other people and with always the risk. So as I say we're not, we're not nearly as badly off as some. And we were commenting before the podcast about um, the, your beautiful library where you don't even have to go to a library right now. Well, yes, I have I have my own library here, um, but but yes, um, the Bodleian Library is just up the road, which is one of the great libraries of the world, and uh, likewise Blackwell's Bookstore, which is a, a to die for bookstore, and I love I love visiting them, but uh, I do most of my work here at my own desk, and and that's just fine. I've got most of what I need for most of the tasks that I'm doing around the shelves here. I, I love bookstores, and uh, when I was in college, I worked at a um, at a bookstore, and we had a section called called the meat rack. And this was a section where we put all those meaty, chewy books that were like things you had to think through. And I, I definitely would put broken signposts there. Oh, really? um, okay. It's Good. very, I found it very, very meaty. You are covering such huge topics like yeah. justice, love, freedom, power. I mean, huge topics that 
academics and philosophers and artists have written about, composed music to, huge themes, and you've broken it down into these nice bite-sized chunks <laughs> that are also, I would say, very meaty. Like you yes. like I I I, uh, I, I'm, I love food, and I always relate books to food. And I'd say yours is very much uh, uh, a ribeye. Like oh, it's just it's all there. It's it's very chewy. It's it's uh, it takes work to kind of dig your knife into, but then you kind of can just savor each bite. Good. And then you got Good. the bone left over, you know, to do some broth. And <laughs> I will tell my wife I've just had some ideas for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> As you are thinking about topics to write about, like what led you to write this particular book? Because it takes a lot of time to to do the research, especially at your level, um, to be able to write this book. And I'm just curious about what led you to do Broken Signposts. Okay, there's two different strands here. Um, 15 years ago, I wrote a book called Simply Christian, which you may know. Um, and that was designed to be a sort of mere Christianity for the 21st century. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. And I went back and reread Lewis, and Lewis begins with justice. He begins with, um, you hear two kids in the playground, and they're saying, that's not fair. And it isn't because they've attended somebody's lectures on the notion of justice in the 20th century or whatever. It's just they know this isn't. So justice is deeply ingrained within us. But the puzzle is that it's also deeply ingrained within us that we find it difficult to do. Uh, fairness is difficult on a child-to-child -child basis, it's difficult on a country-to-country -country basis, which is why we have wars and things, because nobody can settle what justice is. And so Lewis was arguing from that, that uh, when we look at the world, it seems to be out of joint, and we are aware of an out of jointness, and how do we explain that? So that was the kind of seed for it. So then in Simply Christian, I ran that, and then I did spirituality and relationships, as I called it then. It's love in this book. And then beauty. So I did those four, and I called them echoes of a voice. And the image there is you hear a voice in the street. Who was that? Somebody was calling. Where mm. are they? They're, they're round, I can't see them. They're around a corner. But I did hear something. And, and so all of those things are like that for us. And then in Simply Christian, I argued that when we then tell the story that you find in the Bible of God and Israel and Jesus and us and the Holy Spirit, then we say, oh, this is how it was meant to be. This is how it went wrong. And this is maybe how we can be part of a movement that's putting it right, which is answering those calls. Now, then something else happened. I was asked to my surprise to do the Gifford lectures in the University of Aberdeen um, a couple of years ago, 2018, so two and a half years ago now. And that's supposed to be on natural theology. And so I set the whole thing up. It was eight lectures. And the seventh lecture, where the argument was really coming into its own, was on broken signposts. Um, but it was only one lecture. And so I then ran not the four, but the seven, uh, justice, spirituality, relationships, and beauty, but then also freedom, truth, and power. But that was just one chapter. And then having done that, I started to think, you know, it'd be really neat to take one biblical book which deals with all these things and to run this as a thought experiment, taking each one of those and saying, what does this book actually have to say about that? And as soon as I thought of that, John's Gospel was the obvious answer, because all these themes are actually there. And then I thought at the same time, well, do you know what? Most Christians who love John's Gospel don't expect to find justice and freedom and power and all these things, but they are all there. And so 
this was a rather exciting thought experiment and i i made some notes and did some lectures which are on my i don't know if you know the um uh, nt write online um uh, online courses so there's a course on this there but then i thought it's time to write it up so this was i guess 18 months ago i sat down and had a splurge and wrote it all up and then the editors went to work and tidied it up a bit and <laughs> so that's how it happened was it um, because you already had the seeds planted and you'd already been lecturing? So this was pretty yeah, easy for yeah. you to kind of just put out there um, uh, in a sense that you've already no. done the work. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Somebody was asking me about this the other day. And um, it's like when people sometimes ask me, how long did it take you to prepare that sermon? And and I say there's two answers to that. One answer is three hours and the other answer is 35 years, um, you know, because those three hours are concentrating things that have been floating around in a matter of prayer and study and thought. So it was a bit like that, really. This book is very much a commentary on the, on the Gospel of John, yeah. like seven different ways to read it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I wanted to ask you about the one theme that I thought was a little bit different was spirituality because like things like justice, love, freedom, power, beauty, truth, those are all like very human. We can all respond to that. Spirituality for some would say like that doesn't exist. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's that wiggly one. Yes. <laughs> yes. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I was aware that actually they're all of them interestingly different in certain respects. Um, but yes, spirituality slices through because the older modernism which said uh, you know we've given up all that stuff that was just superstition and there are no fairies at the bottom of the garden and there's no father christmas and there's no god and there's no jesus and whatever whatever and of course part of the answer to that is actually jesus himself that sorry jesus is a very strong and striking figure of history and if you're going to be intellectually honest never mind personally honest you have to do business with jesus in some way shape or form which is why historical study really, really matters. That's partly what the Gifford lectures are all about. Um, putting Jesus in the middle of the picture and seeing what happens to your natural theology, because Jesus is a figure of the history of the world, which is where you find the nature upon which a natural theology should be based. So bracketing Jesus out, as natural theologians have sometimes tried to do, is a bit of a cheat, really. You shouldn't do mm. that. Anyway, that, that's a whole other other topic. So then um, spirituality is what you now find more and more. You in California must know this in spades when people say, um, well, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual um, because religion for them means going to that fusty old building on the street corner and uh, a priest mumbling this and that and people singing odd chants that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that, but I'm a deeply spiritual person, you know, because I love poetry or I, I love art or whatever, and I can feel these many dimensions. And it seems to me that actually modernism has been cracked open so many ways now that most people, unless they've been rather carefully trained in modernist rhetoric, will say, yeah, there's something out there which you can loosely call spirituality. Da, 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 da. And I've had this discussion. I was once... Uh, on the governing body of a school in London, where I and some of my fellow governors reckoned that the, the headmaster and the way the school was going was trying to kind of bracket out spirituality, which was funny because it was actually a church foundation. And mm. so and we raised this with the headmaster and he said, I, I really don't know what that word means. So we had a very interesting discussion. And it was as though it was a label 
which loosely gestures towards something that a lot of people, by no means necessarily all Christians, know matters, um, but aren't quite sure how to handle it because it doesn't fit the categories we've inherited from modernism. So, I mean, yeah. into that you can fit all sorts of things like T.S. Eliot's journey from the wasteland to the four quartets or whatever. There are there are things where you can see the high modernism of um, the early 20th century turning around wearily and saying, actually, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to return where we started and know the place for the first time. Oh wow, <laughs> we've we've come home. There is, but 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 what is this home to which we've come? So, looking at John in the light of that, I found really exciting because John is pervaded by this sense of multidimensional reality. As you you know see these conversations of of spirituality or people that wanting to be spiritual or call themselves spiritual, obviously you're pointing to like, this is a broken signpost. Like this is a yeah. fractured yeah. view of spirituality sure. because spirituality truly is in, is in Christ. Um, but does that give you like a hope? Like, oh, it's th like they see it, like it's, it's there. Well, up to a point, it's one of those questions, whether the glass is half full or half empty. Um, I have many friends on different points of the spectrum here. And one of them the other day was telling me that she was reading um, a book on the Gnostic Gospels, which was very buzzy in America in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I thought it had rather gone out of fashion now, but maybe some people are still working with that. And so I rather cheekily pointed out to her that Harold Bloom says that Gnosticism is the default religion of, of Americans. I think I say that in the book. Um, and uh, Gnosticism... Um, if you're a materialist who thinks there is nothing other than the, what you can put in a, a bank balance or a test tube or whatever, then suddenly to discover that maybe there are other dimensions and sparks of light and so on. Wow, that might well be a step in the right direction. But if you're a Christian and then you're told, uh, well, actually, it isn't about Jesus rescuing you from your sin and, and giving you a new resurrection body. It's about escaping from this material world and the true spark of life which is within you. That's very flattering. Wow, I have a spark of life within me. And that plays into the big cultural dynamic of, quote, finding out who I really am, which is one of the great cultural imperatives in late modernity or post-modernity. And then it can just get stuck and become narcissistic. And, and that's it's one of the things that, that the wrong sort of spirituality does. It breeds narcissism. Oh, I'm special because I have a sensitivity towards this or that or mm -hmm. the other. Whereas a part of the Christian spirituality is being opened up to the love of God, which necessarily flows out to other people. Um, and the sign of your own spirituality is that you are taking thought for who what's going on in other people's lives in a, in a healthy way not flattering yourself about what's happened to you yeah i mean when i went, read through the spirituality chapter it's it's very meaty and i had to read through paragraphs over and over again because there's so much there and especially your sections on gnosticism oh. um and this idea of just like because like i think the idea of self-discovery is important yeah. Right. But then you're saying like you could take it too far where it becomes narcissism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's right. I mean, knowing oneself is is really important. Um, but <laughs> if knowing oneself means, oh, I've discovered that I am a this or a that or the other. And actually, I have to say, 
I do things like Myers-Briggs patterns and Enneagram and so on. And we can joke about that, but it is quite serious. But the danger with that is, that, you know, because I'm an ENFJ and because I'm a seven on the Enneagram, therefore, I am special. I fit in this box and I look down on you eights mm. or ones or um, uh, ISTJs or whatever. And and <laughs> if if that's where it takes us, that is dehumanizing. Um, so there is a self-knowledge which then enables us to say, and this, I think, at its best is what the Christian monastic tradition would say, is that by going into a monastery, by going into your cell and by working with your spiritual director, you discover who you really are in order to know that that is what you now make over to God and say, OK, here is all of me and I am at your disposal. Wow, that's scary. Um, yeah, but, but that's that's more true self-knowledge. When I think about um, monks, maybe like a, a Thomas Merton, who like would go out and like spend time alone, like very much seeking answers yeah. Like looking inside, but also looking to God, reading the Bible. Yes. Yes. Um, some might say that that form of uh, spirituality, of kind of contemplation, meditation, is very passive in the sense of, well, you're not doing anything to help the world. <laughs> yes, uh, I. It, it's this is a, a multiple thing. I have known people in enclosed monastic orders, including a member of my family who she's died now, but she was a, a nun in an enclosed order for many years. They are some of the most loving and expansive and outgoing people you could wish to meet. And their prayer life is amazing in terms of who they're praying for and their awareness of situations and so on. I remember a friend of mine telling me about uh, somebody he knew who had a good friend who was a monk on Mount Athos, a Greek Orthodox monk, and he wrote to this monk to say, please will you pray for, and named three people he knew who were very sick, and, after, and then they weren't in touch again, and then the monk wrote to him and said, um, I've stopped praying for your three friends because this one has died and is now with our Lord, and this one has found the right medication, and this one is now fully better. And he hadn't been in touch with anybody, Whoa. but just his praying, and, and he was spot on. He'd got it right. And, and, you know, there are tales like this which emerge from enclosed communities. Of course, it isn't for everybody. I'm an extrovert. I, I would find... Being in an enclosed community, and especially being in a, a monastic cell all day, very, very difficult. Might be a good discipline for me from time to time. Likewise, somebody who is a very serious introvert, it might be too much playing to their personality, as it were. Maybe they need to be drawn out. So this is where a good spiritual director can really, really help and see where the things are which are actually feeding the problems and where the things are which are actually growth and good points and to be enhanced. You, you mentioned that also in the book that you're an extrovert. You like being around people, um, but definitely like studying the Bible, meditation. Those are very much introverted acts in the sense of you are contemplating things. You're thinking you need to be thinking alone many times. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of curious, like, how do you balance that? Like, yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate in that when I was quite young, about 12, somebody told me that I ought to be reading the Bible every day. And I was I was an easy convert to that because I kind of wanted to, but I hadn't really been shown how to do it. Mm. And I was given some little notes and here's the calendar for how to do it. And so I started and through my teens, I was at a boarding school and whether I was at school or at home, I would just get up at a certain time 
and I would spend 10 minutes, a quarter of an hour reading the passage for the day, looking at the notes, etc. That became, by the time I was in my early 20s, that was an absolute ingrained habit of life. So that if I was traveling or sick or whatever and couldn't do it, um, the whole whole day I would be feeling some, something's a bit wrong. I, you know, It's like having put my shoes on the wrong feet or something. Um, and then when I started reading the Bible in, in the original languages, I made my own calendar for how to do that. And I've developed that to this day. And as an Anglican priest, I'm committed to saying morning prayer day by day, which includes readings. And so it's just part of my life. So that that is a private personal thing happens in this room, the prayer desk just over there, morning by morning. And as I say, if for whatever reason I have to miss, have to skip, if we're traveling and leaving at 5 a.m., then that feels out of joint until I've done something to replace it. Um, but yes, ideally, that would be balanced with group Bible study, which is very difficult during the COVID lockdown, etc. Um, and of course, church uh, together, hearing sermons, meditating, praying into passages, etc. Um, you do what you can when you can, but ideally, there should be a balance between the personal and the and the corporate. And I love the fact you have your own prayer desk where you go to do that, you know, uh, that mm. practice. That, what, that's a great, great way to do it. Well, I think many, many people feel that having a place, I mean, uh, in, in our previous house, my prayer desk was actually in my study, which was in a different building. And often in winter, it'd be too cold to go over there in the morning. So I, I had a chair in the living room, which was my corner, and I had the Bibles and the prayer stuff beside it. And so that chair became the prayer desk um, when we lived there. Um, now we're in this house. And so I have this study, which is right in the heart of the house, um, but I can shut the door and be private. Um, but, I, you know, we, we each of us have to make our peace with ourselves and with the other members of the family. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I have to say, when my four kids were all under the age of seven, um, that wasn't so easy day by day, to say the least. <laughs> One of the things that got me too in the chapter is you're talking about Gnosticism and kind of like looking within too much is I, I feel like I have this trouble when I'm even reading the Bible, like having that practice of when I read my Bible at night. I sometimes, I mean, I oftentimes will come to a passage that's very puzzling to me, like even the words of Jesus. And I, I love like Nicodemus are like asking the questions like, I don't, I don't get it because that's me. Like, I don't get it. Like, I need to read it. I need to read it again. But like, but so the danger is like, I'm looking within myself to understand this passage and I get myself into trouble. And this, yeah. this conflicts with like what you're saying is like, it's so important to have that time to like read the Bible. Like that's a good practice. Yeah. But it's also hard for us to understand what we're reading sometimes. Uh, of course. And that's why, I mean, you can see around my study here, most of the books around these shelves are either commentaries on different books of the Bible or discussions of particular themes or whatever. And the reason they exist is because they all do need that help. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch, how can I understand this unless somebody helps me? So Philip says, okay, let me explain. Here's Isaiah 53, here's how it works. Um, and my experience has been throughout my life, and I was very fortunate to be trained as an ancient historian as my first discipline before I got into theology. Um, my, my experience has been that the more you understand the meaning of the texts in their own context, the more the thing springs to life. And you'll have noticed in this book, the temple theme, the theme of uh, what the temple means, that was quite new to me about 30 years ago. I remember it oh my goodness, the temple is where God comes to live. And then more recently realizing 
God comes to live in the temple because actually that's what he intends to do with the whole creation. And the temple is an advanced sign of that. And unless you've learned to think like a first century Jew, then the temple just becomes, oh, it's a religious building. It's rather like a church. And no, it's not like a church. It's quite different. It means something different. And so, um, uh, and, and there's right down to individual sayings where, um, somebody will dig up a papyrus in the sands of Egypt, which shows that a particular word was used in a particular way. Oh my goodness, that's what Paul meant in Romans 10, or that's what John's gospel such and such means. And so it's a, it's a delight that the historical study of the words and the settings and the context constantly challenges us to go deeper. And that's why commentaries really, really matter to help one another. And they, they come in all shapes and sorts and sizes. I'm writing a big learned one on a book at the moment, but I've written, as you probably know, lots of popular ones. And that's that's you need to do within the church as a whole. We need to do both because of your your strong background in, in languages and ancient culture and history and obviously the Bible. <clears throat> sometimes I find it difficult to kind of separate or I don't want to separate kind of that critical analysis of the Bible, like by reading the commentaries and getting into the those meaty texts. Versus like the religious, the kind of devotional aspect, like, again, getting the spirituality aspect of like, what does this mean to me? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, sure. those, those two glasses. Absolutely. And those two flow in and out of one another. It's like two rivers which come together, which then sometimes it's the same river, but then sometimes you discern different movements and so on. And I have learned over the years to, to go with the flow, to keep that metaphor alive, um, because there are some passages that I read where I can instantly make all sorts of transfers into my own life. I, one of the bits of the, uh, the Old Testament I'm reading right now is the beginning of the book of Joshua. Um, and, uh, you know, I can hear the Lord saying to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. You've got work to do. Get on with it. And I, I can take that immediately to myself. Um, there are other bits in the book of Joshua, which I'm a bit nervous about getting to because um, I hope I'm not like um, when the children of Israel get it wrong and and have to be rebuked and so on. But but uh, that sort of typological reading can go along quite happily alongside a historical awareness of what was actually going on. And I find they fuel each other. And, and it's possible to be deceived and to imagine a kind of application which really doesn't match the original and I, you know, I think the Holy Spirit is well capable of taking care of that sort of thing. So for me, re reading scripture takes place in the context of prayer. Uh, I, my, my morning routines start with an invocation of, of the Trinity, start usually with Psalm 95, which the Anglican morning prayer starts with, come let us sing unto the Lord, etc. So invoking the presence of God and then within that getting into the Psalms and the Old Testament, the New Testament, and flanking that as well with other uh, scriptural or ancient hymns and prayers, which kind of hold on to the thing. And out of that whole mix comes a sense, sometimes a very specific sense, an unexpected sense that today you really need to go and get on with this, or mm. today you need to go and say sorry to so-and-so, or whatever it is. Other times, it's just a general sense of being enfolded within the purposes of God. This is our story. And 
like looking at a family album. Oh my goodness, that's what great-grandfather looked like. And he started this company and he did this and that. And that's my story too, in a sense. You know, I had some of those genes. So it's all of that and much, much more. But of course, the whole thing about reading scripture is that scripture is the Jesus-shaped book. And as one is reading scripture, one ideally ought to be consciously thinking, this is Jesus' story. And I get to be a Jesus follower. And by hanging on to Jesus' coattails and getting to know him, all this becomes my story. And it means what it means through the lens of Jesus. So that all the very odd bits in, say, Joshua and Judges, they mean what they mean in the light of the cross, of the suffering of God himself on the cross, and so on and so on. You see what I'm saying? Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. N.T. Wright about ways spirituality has become broken in society and in ourselves and practical steps that we can take to lean into God through a regular devotional practice of prayer and scripture reading. Next time, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. N.T. Wright as he shares the benefits of working with a spiritual director and ways that spiritual directors can assist us in understanding ourselves and how God may be working in our lives. He also talks to us about dark nights of the soul and the importance of reading the laments in scripture. So that's next time. And before we go, I want to share three key takeaways that I want to remember from today's discussion. Number one, wrong spirituality breeds narcissism. N.T. Wright shares how seeking to understand ourselves through personality tests, Enneagrams, Myers-Briggs can be very, very helpful, but we need to be mindful of how spending too much time focusing on ourselves can lead us into narcissism. Introspection and scriptural meditation should lead us to want to learn more about God, not ourselves. Number two, there are many types of prayer and meditation practices to consider for your spiritual growth. Some types of prayer practices might not be helpful to you or cause you to fall asleep or even get bored. Introverts and extroverts might find some forms of prayer easier than others. Explore and experiment with different prayer practices to see what works best for you. There are walking prayers, prayer desks, praying through the Psalms, prayer journals. There are so many different ways to approach prayer. So test different methods out and see what works best for you. Number three, reading the Bible critically and devotionally should be part of our spiritual experience. Dr. Wright talks with us about how reading our Bible can flow into critical analysis and spiritual insights at the same time. We should read the Bible with both of these lenses on to help us get the most value from our Bible reading time. And that leads us to this week's question. Dr. Wright challenges us to practice regular prayer and reading the Psalms. He says that he created this habit as a young boy and now to this day doesn't feel right if he hasn't started his day in prayer and meditation. So my question is, do you think regular prayer and biblical readings would help you in your understanding of God? And what are some challenges you might have with creating a regular prayer and reading practice? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram or Twitter. You can find me at Delgado Podcast. Oh, and if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating this show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help the show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care and we'll chat next time. Thank you.